If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 16. We'll go through the end of uh, the chapter. As, uh, as you're turning, if I could do uh, just a little bit in the way of some programming-type notes, uh, you are aware uh, that each morning uh, there is a pop-up uh, that we call our morning devotions. I've been doing a series recently uh, from unbelief to belief. Again, an attempt to just say things that I think would be useful, helpful, uh, both in encouraging and strengthening your faith, but also in helping you to speak to those that are currently unbelieving and bringing them uh, to faith. We're going to begin this week, beginning uh, on Tuesday morning and Friday morning. Uh, I'm going to call this little two-day uh, thing that we'll repeat each week, uh, uh, pack and unpack. And I often leave here on Sundays going, I didn't say that very well. Uh, I don't think I was very clear. Or somebody will say, Brother Tim, I wish you had said this, that, or the other about a text. And so uh, on Tuesday, I'm going to kind of give you some uh, post-sermon thoughts uh, about uh, what was preached on the previous Sunday. And uh, if you would like, uh, if you get them to me by mid-morning on Monday, uh, I will try to answer a question or address something that maybe was of a concern of, of, of yours. And obviously, we can't do everything. But again, I emphasize we record uh, Monday afternoon, usually about 2 o'clock. And so I need it uh, fairly early on Monday morning. And then uh, most of you are aware, most of you don't utilize it, but you are aware uh, that on Thursdays, I send out a, an email called Preparing for Worship. Guess what it's for? Any, any of y'all ever thought about this? Uh, it is to assist you in preparing for worship, okay? Uh, I, I'm very creative in, in putting titles on things. But it is an attempt because I think there is a relationship between your mind and your heart and your will. There, there is the idea, I am teaching you. I'm giving you content. And so when I stand up here on Sunday morning, if you have prepared, if you've looked at the appropriate text and prepared your mind, then you're prepared to hear and therefore your heart be engaged to worship the God that so perfectly revealed himself. And so I will say some additional things, not just read through what I've written, but just some thoughts. Hey, get ready for Sunday. Here's what's coming down the pipe as we look at such and such a text. So two kind of, they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna be in the morning devotion slot. They'll be part of your morning devotion package. So kind of excited uh, about doing that. I, I, I kind of stole the idea from Johnny Sanders. I have no original ideas, but uh, the Sunday night youth study is, again, kind of going back through the Sunday morning sermon and just saying, hey, it's not. Now, they are not doing... Well, this is what it means to me, okay? That's not what they're doing. But they're thinking critically about the truth of the Word of God. And so I appreciate uh, that. So just be, be looking for that. Now, as we think about our text today, and as I've thought about it and seen it coming uh, for several weeks, there's certainly an appropriate excitement. This, this is one of those texts, okay? It's one of those benchmarks. It's one of those that there are volumes written about. It also creates a bit of anxiety 
that I would do it justice. That, that, that I would be able to communicate well that which is so critical uh, to what is going on uh, in the text. So again, uh, please uh, pray for me. And uh, if you uh, looked at preparing for worship this week, maybe you thought, I need to pray for this guy if he's going to preach this stuff uh, th- this week. And so I need your prayers every week. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul encounters the pagan philosophers of his day. And they represented the worldview of the unbelieving world. And, and in, 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 in this vignette, if we can call it that, uh, I guess uh, if we use scholarly language, in this pericope, uh, this section of, of Scripture, you really see this, this intersection of everything from the fall of man through the Tower of Babel into the modern unbelieving world, and you see the, the revelation of God through the cross of Jesus Christ flowing into the believing world. And, and really the testimony particularly of the Western world is in some sense the confluence, the, the way these uh, things have complemented each other, and the way these ideas have conflicted with each other. And so much of the craziness that you see in our world today reaches back to its philosophical underpinnings that at some level are articulated and developed by these philosophical ideas that didn't originate in Greece or Athens, but they flowed up to and through Greece and Athens. And just as Paul refuted them with the gospel, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we must continue to annihilate, to demolish all of these philosophical presuppositions because in the end, they are both unbiblical and they are ultimately destructive to the souls, to men and women and boys and girls. So let's look at this encounter. Let's begin our reading in verse 16, and we'll read through the end of the chapter in chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way 
you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us, for In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance that God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among those were Dionysius, the, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we believe that it is your word. And we believe that it does come with divine authority and divine power, that, that you have provided in it all we need for life and godliness. You have provided in it that which we need to bear witness to you in this, a fallen world. God, I pray uh, that your spirit uh, would work in me today, giving me an ability to speak appropriately, accurately, faithfully, and you would give those who gather here today the ability to hear. Your spirit would apply these things, that we would be strengthened by your truth, that we would be faithful to you and that we would be bold in knowing that you indeed are the answer for all of the issues of life. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I often mention as being disappointed and and distressed about is there's very little place within the culture to to really legitimately go and to share ideas, even conflicting, opposing types of ideas. Uh, Again, uh, now even in the world of academia, think of the average college campus. If you were to express something of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony of God given in His law, His demands, you would immediately be characterized as engaging in hate speech, and you're doing harm to those that have differing views. How, how different our world is when, again, we are willing to meet people at where they are and discuss legitimately why it is that we embrace 
this great truth of a God who has revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ and has come and he has lived and he has died and he has been raised again for our salvation. And so one of the reasons, for better or for worse, that I keep a Facebook page is sometimes there's actually a legitimate exchange of ideas. There is a presentation of that which is true. Now, to be sure, there's plenty of foolishness out there, okay? And I know that. And sometimes I put a bit of foolishness up there. But so often I see things, oh, this is the truth. And it's put forth in a bit of a soundbite, and it allows people, even sometimes I get some pushback from Christians. They're wrong, of course, when they disagree with me, but that's fine. That's fine. We can exchange ideas, okay? And, and so I, I bemoan, I desire to speak to the unbelieving world. I'm not one of those. I'm not going to chase them down. I'm not going to put them in a chain, put my foot on their throat and say, you're going to listen to me. If that would work, I would do it. But I don't believe that it would. And it, it, it leads me to thinking about how are we to think about ourselves? Are we surgeons? That is, do we go in and very skillfully and artfully remove that which is diseased and damaged, even dead within uh, the hearts of men, operating very, very sharply and precisely? Well, yeah, you know, of course, I know some other people that use very sharp objects. They processed about five deer for me this year uh, out at a deer processing plant. They use sharp objects, but I don't think I want them operating on me, okay? And, and so there's a skill set necessary. But are we surgeons? Or are we soldiers? Do we just drop bombs here, there, and everywhere? Just demolish everything? You know, what, what, what is the term? Whatever the collateral damage is, so be it to the glory of God. I just destroyed you, and I'm proud of it. Sometimes there's a place for both. We, we, need, we need both. We need to speak the truth, but sometimes we need to pick, pick our tone even, pick our timing. This was an appointed time and an appointed opportunity for Paul. This is what they did in Athens. From what I can see, while there was a bit of sarcasm and cynicism from the philosophers, they were at least intrigued and willing to listen. Um, something that isn't always present uh, within our culture. And so Paul has arrived at Athens. He's had to leave Thessalonica under pressure. He, uh, he's taken uh, to Athens by some uh, people from Thessalonica, leaving his associates there. He's waiting there, but he's not twiddling his thumbs. He is prepared to go into that pagan city and to minister uh, to the people. And so we're told there in verse 16 that Paul is provoked by the idols that he sees within that city, that, that he is ticked. He, it, though he's, what he sees burns him up. It, it grinds his gears. He, he, is, he experiences revulsion at what he sees because now as much as we like to clean up the idolatry of the ancient world, it was a vile scene. It was an awful thing. See, even the most hardened, perverted person of our day might blush at what went on in ancient cities such as Athens. And so what he saw made 
him sick. He was deeply troubled by the the idols and what they represented, the, the debauchery, the debasement, uh, the depravity, the way in which people would be abused within uh, these systems, he was absolutely incensed. And I will say this. As we look at our increasingly pagan culture and the debauchery and the depravity and the debasement, we experience more provocation and we experience more revulsion when we get home and we realize the folks at McDonald's left the French fries out of our order. We speak more to the fact that there were no people working the checkout line at Walmart. We get on Facebook and rant and rave about that rather than the moral perverts that are driving the destruction of the culture. We, we, we got, I mean, our gears are more ground over the superficial silliness of the problems of the first world than we are of the reality that people are believing a lie. And they're con in that lie, they're condemning themselves to an eternity in separation from God. We should be disturbed, and we should be rightly provoked. Paul understood that there was a supernatural power, demonic power. He can say in 1 Corinthians 10 that, they, that actually a sacrifice offered to an idol is a sacrifice offered to a demon, that, that demons were involved in this. And they were entrenching themselves in this system, and they were ingraining themselves in the lives of these people, enslaving them to a lifetime and then an eternity of torment. And then at the same time, he could say in 1 Corinthians 8, it's just a rock or a piece of wood. And I love the passage we read uh, from Isaiah. Now, that's my kind of Bible, okay? I just have to tell you why. Because the prophet is like, y'all are a bunch of idiots. Okay, you got up this morning, you bowed your knee to that piece of wood, and then you cooked supper over it. Now, how stupid is that? And sometimes that's what we need to talk to the culture. I mean, seriously. I mean, really? Okay, you believe that. That's great. I mean, go for it other than you're an idiot. Okay? I mean, there it, again, time and play. You do not need to say that to everybody. Okay? But at times, that's the only thing that gets through. Okay? Is that type of bombastic approach. And sometimes we have to be more gentle in our approach, admittedly, okay? Sometimes we, we have to understand at some level why people have allowed themselves to be entrapped in this way of thinking and work through it with the gospel as our, our goal. And so we find Paul's disturbed. He sees this. What does he do? Verse 17, we're told he goes to the synagogue, and there's that word we saw last week, dialegomai. He dialogued. He discussed. He talked about the fact that Jesus is uh, the Christ. And isn't it interesting? It really does seem that he got a more, at least courteous response from the pagans in Athens than from the Jews in the synagogue. Even though they had a lot more that, that what we call points of affinity or points of agreement with the Jews than he did with the Gentile pagans, but at least they didn't beat him with rods, they didn't stone him, they didn't run him out of town when he presented his thoughts there in Athens. And so he's reasoning with the Jews and uh, the proselytes, and then he goes 
to the marketplace, the agora. Many of you have heard uh, that term. I, my mind always goes back in the late 70s. There was a, a place in Atlanta, Georgia, close to the Fox Theater, called um, Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom. Okay, A lot of big acts got their start there. It later became the Agora Ballroom Okay, in the early 1980s. Never went there, but I remember that. And then you've all heard the term agoraphobia, the fear of crowds, the fear of being in, in public. Okay, And so that's where that term comes from. And so this was the marketplace. This was the gathering place. This is where uh, business was transacted. But it was also a place where ideas were, were e exchanged there in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Athens. Now, the next phrase in verse 17 caught my attention. He, so he's in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, y'all know this. Y'all just happened to be here today. You're just lucky. That's all we can say about it. You're just lucky to be here. I see some people grinning because I've rebuked them recently about it. <laughs> yeah, y'all just lucky to be here. Sometimes biblical writers, intentionally, sometimes they use hyperbole and exaggeration. They go way over the top. And sometimes they go way underneath. And they understate things to draw your attention to it. See, Luke, if you read his gospel and you read Acts, he's very interested in the divine appointment. He's very, he's very interested in that God is working in all things, even the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ, because he puts him on the cross according to his set purpose and foreknowledge. He's very interested in God's sovereign workings, that those that were appointed to eternal life believed the gospel. Okay? He's very interested in that. Then he comes back here and says, well, they just happened to be there. Oh, they just happened to be there. Y'all just happened to be here today. You know, you, you're just driving down the road and say, oh, that's a nice building. Let's go in there. No, no. You know, he knows, you know, and I know. We're here by divine appointment. They were there because God had ordained that they uh, be there. And so they're in the marketplace, and there in verse 18, they're in the marketplace, are the representative philosophical schools. That's not all the philosophical schools of the ancient world, but two representative, and, and possibly you might even say, two uh, kind of extremes of ancient philosophical thought, that being the Epicureans and the Stoics. You're probably familiar. Have, have any of you heard of Epicurean delights? Uh, usually associated with desserts and things like that, I think, you know, something really sweet. Well, that's because the Epicureans were all about the physical senses, the physical desire, uh, de delights, the pursuit of, of pleasure. Uh, they were largely atheistic material materialistic, uh, uh, they, they, they were more seekers of pleasure than the pursuers of that which there was uh, duty, and very little in the way of moral standards associated with the Epicureans. The Stoics, well, we've heard that term, you know, he stoically faced his enemy, okay? Uh, that is, he sucked it up, you know, maybe in uh, the modern vernacular, or my modern vernacular at least. But they were more pantheistic, okay? That God is in everything and of everything. Uh, they really wasn't a personal God, just kind of a, a spirit of, of reason. Uh, they tended to have a higher uh, moral code. Uh, they um, were very reasonable in terms of understanding that which was good or that which was uh, 
evil. And again, they emphasized this pantheistic unity of all that is. Now, just as a means of association, if you want to see modern pantheists, look at the global warming crowd, crowd and the other types of tree huggers and people like at PETA and places like that. Yeah, I, listen, I heard a piece the other day. My understanding is, and this seems appropriate, that New York City is being ran over by rats, that, that they have a rat, the, 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 what, the largest city in the world or one of the largest cities in the world, most advanced center, center of the economic world, they're having rat problems. And there are those that are raising the issue of how to humanely deal with rats, okay? Now, again, the foolishness, because let me tell you something. Even in our modern world, a rat represents a, a health crisis to humanity. And the folly, I mean, we're concerned about the baby rats. Don't get me started because you know where this is going. But let's kill the baby humans just because it's convenient. Again, the cultural insanity. And so you can see the, how this flows forward and backwards, okay? So representative groups there uh, within uh, the, uh, uh, the marketplace. It says, my translation, they conversed with him. Again, they were debating. They, they, they were going uh, back and forth. They were, they were willing uh, to, to, uh, to speak uh, with him, uh, to hear what he said. But yet again, still in verse 18, what does this babbler, again, the literal is picker of seeds or seed picker, the idea of a, of a bird just picking seeds, you know, picking around. Uh, who, again, who is this guy speaking this nonsense? However, again in verse 18, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now, Paul, uh, Luke tells us there in verse 21, hey, the, these, these people in Athens, if it's new, they're all in. They want to they hear about the new, the strange, whatever, okay? That's, that's what they're all about. And so now, now, again, that doesn't mean that they were not spiritually dead. That doesn't, that doesn't mean they were seekers or anything like that. That just means they like novel things, and they were at least willing to give it some type of hearing, okay? And so, but now here, look, look at verse 18, the end of it. I've mentioned this before. It is not unusual to see in a commentary someone say something along the lines, or at least mention that others have said this, that Paul made a tactical or a strategic error at Mars Hill in Athens because he didn't preach Jesus, that he got into a philosophical debate, therefore the imperishable seed of the new birth was not planted, and no church was founded, and that's why when he got to Corinth, he resolved, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ, and him crucified because he had been such a royal failure in Athens. Eh, not true. What does it say he was preaching there? To the Stoics and the Epicureans, and the Jews, and the proselytes. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he was preaching the gospel to these groups, and he was preaching Jesus as the all-sufficient one to answer all of life's questions. Now, I'll be fair with you. We, we can appropriately 
be intimidated by the intellect and the courage of somebody like Paul. I, I used to be a, a major fan of a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Many of you remember the late Ravi Zacharias. And soon after his death, uh, it came out that he was involved in some just morally horrible things, just devastating uh, things. But he was adept. He, he understood how the world thought and why they thought that way, and he could relate it uh, to the gospel. And I was just intimidated by, by the wealth of, of information. But I, I have told you before, the answer is the resurrection. Let me tell you something, folks. You may never debate molecular biology with somebody that's a professor at UAB. You don't have to. You do not have to debate world history or world philosophy with all of the scholars of the age. I tell you this, the most demonstrably true thing to ever occur on the face of the earth was that the Son of God came, He lived a perfect life, He died, and God raised Him on the third day, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He will one day return to judge the living and the dead. It is irrefutable. And I love this. I shared it last night and it just, now I'm getting pumped up. I'm getting ready to preach here. I've told you this story before, but I love it. I'm a fan of the late Chuck Colson. Didn't always agree with him. He went down some roads I didn't approve of. He didn't ask me and he wouldn't care if he did. But he knows the truth now. He wouldn't do it. But Chuck Colson talked about the truth of the gospel. You're telling me that these nobodies with zero material goods, zero political power, with a guy that they just buried is going to shake the world, stand before emperors, lose their friends and families for a cause that's not true. There is no possible way. And he went on to tell Chuck Colson was one of Richard Nixon's chief advisors and chief officials in the Nixon administration. And when Watergate went down, they were the most powerful men on the face of the earth. They held the reins of everything that mattered in the United States of America. And all they had to do was shut your traps and this will pass in six months. And he said, let me tell you something. It wasn't but just a few weeks that John Dean runs to the special prosecutor and spills his guts to cut a deal so he would not be prosecuted. You're telling me that this bunch of nobodies that had nothing held this thing together for the next 50 years when they were persecuted, they were martyred, they lost everything if it was not true. Folks, it is true. It shook the world then. It'll shake the world now. And that is that which we have to demolish every stronghold. That is the truth. And it will stand. And indeed, it is the power of God to salvation. It is that which will give the heart of stone the heart of flesh. It is that which will open the blind eyes, and it is that by which God will make alive. So, now, Paul is taken to the Areopagus. Now, there is some question 
Was it kind of an arrest? Was he coerced and forced to go there? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think it was just, and then, hey, we want, it, we want you to hear, so we're going to leave the marketplace. We're going to go down the hill. Uh, the Parthenon is sitting up here on top of the Acropolis, and we're going to go down here uh, to this place called the Areopagus. It, it, the, I don't think there's much left of what they would call the Areopagus now in Athens, but we're going to go down to this area. Uh, there's, there's pavilions here. We get out of the sun. We're going to sit, and, and we're going to talk uh, about uh, uh, these, these, these issues. And so, uh, so they say, you're bringing new teaching. We're kind of into that. We like to listen to ideas. It's strange, but, you know, we're going to let you tell us what these things mean. And again, Luke adds, I mentioned it already there in verse 21, that uh, the, Athenian, the Athenians were just all about uh, hearing of something new. So they were willing to give Paul uh, this hearing. And so he's taken uh, down to the uh, Areopagus to, to Mars Hill, would be the way it would come into uh, to English. And uh, he begins to uh, address them uh, there uh, in verse uh, 21 and uh, speak specifically uh, to the answering of their questions there to these Epicureans, the Stoics, those others gathered there. Now, and just kind of a, a word, I'm not sure that these were the pipe-smoking, um, you know, tweed jacket, wear, bearded academics, you know, you know, you know, sitting there looking like they know something, uh, or if it was the pseudo-intellectuals, because Athens was long past its prime. Plato and Socrates have been dead for years, okay? And so uh, may, I, I'm not sure that, that, that it was not just a bunch of what, uh, there, there's a term in Southern literature, a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, a bunch of people just too sorry to work, sit around and shoot the breeze all day and, and listen to the, the latest idea. Just not sure how scholarly it was, probably a mix. Some, some truly brilliant men uh, were there, but... But again, they were a bunch of blowhards that didn't have anything better to do than to sit there and pontificate and not do the things necessary. Remember, it is Christianity and, and Judo-Christianity that identifies labor, working for a living, as virtuous. The ancient world, you were seen as low class if you went out and worked with your hands to provide for your family. All other worldviews devalue work. It is in the Christian faith and in the Judo-Christian heritage that these things are valued and identified as a virtue. All right. So Paul presents his, I, I put in the notes, apologia. Okay, verse, verse uh, 22. He begins to speak uh, directly to them, to, to the men of Athens. So let's just break this down really, really quickly, and, and come, kind of come in for, for a landing here. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. You're religious. You're, you're concerned about big, important questions. Uh, you, you, you want answers to uh, why reality is, is, is real. And, and you've gone so far as to say, well, just in case we've left one out, okay, just in case there's one we haven't identified by name, we're going to build this altar and we're just going to, you know, this is the generic catch-all, 
okay, uh, to, to the God that, that, that maybe we left out just so uh, we don't forget him. And Paul says, well, what you worship is unknown. Let me tell you this. I, I'm going to proclaim the God who is known. Verse 24, he is the sovereign Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the transcendent God. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is independent and self-sustaining. He does not live in temples made by man. He is independent. He does not need what you offer as sacrifices because he is not served by human hands because he does not need anything. He is the great God who is in all and above all, and he does not need that which you are offering to him. And then in verse uh, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and I underlined it. Remember what he said back in verse, uh, was it verse 17? They just happened to be there. What does he say here? Everybody that exists. He made them, and he puts you where you are. So, again, kind of, kind of a contrast there. Uh, Luke calling attention uh, to certain uh, realities. But this God who has created, he is the God of all providence. He is the Lord of history. And he has designed all of this so that they, humanity, those that have been created, those that live on the face of the earth, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, all of the created cosmos, including humanity, and our sense of conscience, our sense of otherworldness, the, the, the sense of, of reality, all of these things incline our hearts to, to look for that which is behind our reality. But there's a problem, isn't there? God has given us good revelation. God has given us creation. All men have this creation. And as the question that usually follows... What about all the innocent people in Africa who have never heard? And what's the answer to the question? There are no innocent people in Africa, even though they have never heard. Why? Go to Romans 1.18. I don't hear pages turning. Go to Romans 1.18. Here's the problem. And again, Paul is never arguing that people can be saved by looking at a tree or a sunrise or the moon or, you know, all that. He's saying it is accurate information. What do we do with accurate information? He f- explains it in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. That's what we do with the knowledge that God gives us. Whether general revelation in creation and conscience, and unless God opens your heart, and unless God replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, you will suppress even the witness of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will figure a way to negotiate around it or deny it, but you will not yield to the lordship of Jesus Christ unless God so works in your heart. And so we suppress 
this knowledge. And we create all kind of perverse and false systems. Now, he goes on, Paul, in verse 20, he says, they're without excuse. There's no man ever on the face of this earth that has an excuse before God. Okay? Nobody. Doesn't matter if they never, if, if, if they couldn't spell Jesus, they still have no excuse when they stand before God. Because whatever God gave them in Revelation, they suppressed it, they distorted it, they perverted it, and what did they do? They did not honor God. They did not give thanks. They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And they continue on that path, and they continue on that path, and they continue on that path. In verse 24 and following, what, what do you see? Three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. And God gave them over. That's what happens in the world to those apart from the gospel who suppress the knowledge of the truth, is they come up, whether it's Epicurean philosophy or Stoic philosophy or some hybrid of that or some other strange philosophy, whatever it is, they suppress the knowledge of the truth. And if you read the passage, how do we, how do we get to the place in a, in a nation, in a world, where when somebody says, I am a woman in a man's body, we celebrate and call them brave, and the first lady of the United States recognizes as woman of the year someone who is biologically and anatomically a man as the woman of the year. How do you get to that place? You get to that place because you suppress the knowledge of the truth, and God gives them over to the depravity of their own soul. And it goes, it goes backwards, and it comes forward. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. It is the suppression of the knowledge of the truth. And what are we left with? The man, Jesus Christ. Go back, go back to Paul's sermon here. Okay, let me, let, me, let me interject this real quick. You see the inset here, the, the quotes from the poets. And what is he saying? Your poets have already discerned we're God's offspring. Do I look like I'm made out of wood or stone? Again, a little sarcasm here, folks. Do, do I look like I am a piece of stone or wood, but yet you're saying that God from which you are an offspring is wood or stone? Have you lost your mind? And so then, verse 29, being God's offspring, well, not think like that. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked. That doesn't mean the ancient world got a pass. That means God dealt with the Jews and God rebuked and disciplined and punished them when they rebelled against him. But he let the, other, the rest of the ancient world go into their suppression and God gave them over and God gave them over and God gave them over. He overlooked it. But now, but now things have changed because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given us this assurance. How, how do I know there's a day of judgment coming? How do I know? Watch well, this opinion. Because I, I think you ought to be judged. Because you weren't very nice to me, and I think you deserve judgment. Right? That's how I know it. I don't think so. I know it because God raised his son from the dead. And it is an ear refutable fact. 
Now, here's the problem now, and here's one of the problems we've got in the culture. We can't even define what reality is, okay, what truth is. We can't, we can't even get there. You know, we can't even agree it's daylight out there. No, it's not daylight. To me, it's nighttime. And that stands unchallenged. But there's a day of judgment coming. And I know it's coming because the man that said it has been raised from the dead. And again, that is the linchpin of our argument. Paul's message produces a mixed response. You see there in verse 32. Now, they were fine. We're interested. We'll listen. Strange gods, we're all about that. Oh, well, well, wait a minute. Repent? Resurrection? Ju- oh, wait. No, 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 no. That's a little narrow for us because we're all just good folks. Now, ask yourself this. Typically, every philosophy, every worldview, every religion must answer accurately. At least, I've got five questions. There may be more, maybe less. Ask yourself, can the Epicureans and the Stoics answer this? Can can the New Age movement answer this? Can the neo-pagans of our day answer this question? The question of origin. Where did I come from? Or how did I get here? You can, you know. Where did I come from? Why why is there something rather than nothing? Well, nothing decided to be something, and while it was still nothing, it it became something. This this watch, this Apple watch, it was nothing. Then it decided to become a, a glob of plastic and leather and steel, and then it decided again to be a watch, and it actually works pretty well. That really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Second question, the question of purpose. Question of purpose. How do I live? What what am I here for? What's the, you know, and and kind of concurrently with that, the the question of of meaning. Why am I here? Am I I just here to pursue pleasure or achievement? Or is there something greater than just the things that I can get hold of in this life? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? Fourth question. Why is the world such a difficult place? Why are so many tears shed in this world? Why is there so much loss? Why is there such pain in our world? Now, will you, you know, are you going to be a stoic? No, there's really no such thing as pain. You just suck it up and keep going. Folks, there's some things in this life that hurt. They are devastatingly painful. Only a Christian worldview can explain why both the evil and the good suffer. Then the question of destiny. What happens after I die? Kansas said what? I'm just dust in the wind. Perfect, perfect summation. Perfect summation of a godless pagan worldview. I'm just dust in the wind. Yeah. Only for a moment, then the moment's gone. That's it. I'm gone. Just a material world. What answers the great questions? There's only one worldview, only one system of thought. Doesn't matter how high-minded, don't matter, you know, they smoking a Dr. Gray bone, got the, the patches on their sleeves and the beard, and sitting there in the faculty lounge pontificating. The answer is a day coming. At times, God overlooked. But now, because God has raised his son from the dead, he's commanding all men, all places at all times, to 
repent. Which means turn from the foolishness that cannot answer these questions. That cannot satisfy the human heart to the truth of the living God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you how inadequate we are. We confess it. How inadequate we are to the truth of your word. But God, just as your spirit inspired it, how we would ask your spirit to work among us here today. Work within us. Give us understanding. Give us courage for these days in which we live. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.